I've talked about this before, just having grown up in athletics, and one of the things that I thought about this week is that um, in growing up in athletics, I really had two different styles of coaching that um, were common in my athletic career. There were those coaches who were intimidating coaches, and then there were those that were encouraging coaches. And if you've played sports, you've probably seen uh, both of these examples. The intimidating coaches are hard to miss, right? (laughs) Because they're always in your face. It's like playing for a drill sergeant, you know. Come on, son, you can do better than that. Is that the best you've got? Come on, I need you to try. That's what you hear from those intimidating coaches. And I personally had a hard time playing for coaches like that because I was so afraid of making mistakes that I couldn't concentrate on what I needed to do to make any improvements. My goal really was to minimize criticism. And in the absence of affirmation, I never really knew how I was doing. And if I was doing well at all. But then there are those encouraging coaches. I remember Dr. Chisholm, when he was here a few weeks ago, he talked about an experience that he had with a, as a kid many, many years ago, but he remembers it. These are the kinds of coaches who come alongside you. They put their arm around you and say, listen, son, let me tell you what I see in you. And they begin to paint a picture of your potential. What they believe you can do with some hard work and, and hard effort. These are the kind of coaches that you play for that you want to do better for, right? You want to reach the potential that they see in you because you know they believe in you. It's a whole different style of coaching. But even in that, I see some of those same dynamics carried over into what I observe in relationships. Some people prefer to relate to others through domination, kind of that style of the intimidating coach. I'll be your friend as long as I'm in control. I've seen relationships, even marriages, that follow that pattern. And one of the outcomes, one of the attributes that I see very consistently in this type of relationship is the absence of security. Because like the intimidating coach, you're never quite sure if you ever really measure up in that relationship of that kind. So instead of trying to improve your relationship, to to grow in your relationship, you're just trying to to keep the peace in your relationship. It's kind of like walking around with nitroglycerin tied to your chest, right? You just don't want to make any waves so that everybody stays safe. I want you to think about how different it is when you're in a relationship with someone who loves you with unconditional acceptance. So much so that you have the security when when fear is replaced with forgiveness. When love is not conditioned on performance, but on a commitment of a promise. It brings about a whole new freedom and a whole new depth of intimacy when two people are seeking the highest good for the other. It's a relationship that is built on trust. And that's actually the the relationship that God desires for us to have with Him. But all too often, I think we have the wrong view of God. And so He ends up looking like one of those intimidating coaches who's just waiting for us to make a mistake. So He can come in and, and criticize what we're doing wrong. We end up living in the fear of His punishment. And intimacy is just appealing, but... We're unwilling to go there because we've just got to keep a safe distance, right? 
But God's love is not like that. His love is a covenant love. It is a love of unconditional acceptance. His forgiveness invites us not to create space, but to draw near in confidence. We have great security, not in our performance, but in His promise. We grow in intimacy as we learn to trust Him. And I believe that that's what John wants us to understand in our passage this morning. He wants us to have great assurance in God's promise of commitment. He wants us to draw near to that throne of grace with confidence. He wants us to live a life of assurance that is based in the security of God's faithfulness. That's where He wants us to live our life. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come to You this morning, we want to hear Your heart in our passage. There are some different things in our passage that uh, have proven to be difficult, um, even for hundreds of years. And I'm going to ask, Lord, that You help us not get stuck there, that we don't miss the forest for the trees. (laughs) but that we can see the overarching heart of that promise of assurance that's found when we walk in fellowship with You. That's our prayer this morning. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Let's begin with what we've looked at several times already. This is the purpose statement of John's letter. We've read it several times Because it's important to see where he's wanting us to to go. But let's look at it one more time. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. This is John's reason for writing this letter. Assurance. No matter what else you hear this morning, please don't miss that point. It is the most important point. John writes this letter to those who believe so that they may know that they have eternal life. His goal is to to give them assurance of God's promise and His faithfulness to that promise. And I want you to notice how that assurance is based on their belief in the name of Jesus, the name of the Son of God. To believe in a name is to believe in all that name represents. And John, as we have worked our way through this letter, has gone through great lengths, right, to to help us understand all those things that Jesus has done, what that name represents. Remember, it's a belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He was sent by the authority of God to declare the truth of God so that we might have peace with God through the blood of the cross. Believing in the name of Jesus is a decision of trust. It is a belief that what the Scriptures says is true. And not just true generally, but that it's true for you. That it's personal. 
It is my faith that gives me assurance. I can't have assurance based on the faith of someone else. This is what I believe to be true. It has to be the faith that God fulfills His promise. And He did so when He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul tells the Corinthians, for all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Everything God said He would do, He did through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He promised to be our Redeemer. And we know that in the person and work of Christ, our Redeemer lives. And one day, He will stand upon the earth. He promised to be our salvation. And we believe that there is salvation in no other name except the name of Christ alone. God promised to forgive our sins and we believe that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. He promised to give us eternal life. And we believe that He who has the Son has the life. That promise of eternal life. Our assurance is found in our faith in Jesus Christ in whom God fulfilled every single promise that He has ever made. That's because our God is a promise keeper. He is faithful. And that is the basis of our insurance. And it's also the basis as to why we have confidence to go before Him in prayer. That's what John says next. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked of Him. See, prayer is a posture of dependence. It's the habit of those who believe that it is God's desire, that His heart is inclined to those who desire to do His will. We have confidence to draw near. We know that He hears our prayers. Now, this is the fourth time that that John has used this word confidence in his letter. Twice he uses it in reference to the confidence we have at the day of judgment. And now twice he uses it in reference to the confidence we have when we go to God in prayer. In this context, confidence literally means the freedom to speak. The freedom to speak. It's that idea of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 that says that we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We have the freedom to speak what is on our heart, knowing that God hears us and He gives us grace and mercy in our time of need. Not only that, our passage this morning says that we have assurance that we will receive anything we ask that is in accordance with His will. John already spoke of that same promise. The other time he used that term confidence as it relates to prayer is back in chapter 3, verse 21. Just turn back a page or so to chapter 3, verse 21. He says, Beloved, 
If our heart does not condemn us, we have, there's the word, confidence before God. And here's why. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because He keeps, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Now, I want us to think about what these two passages that speak of the confidence we have in, in going to God in prayer have to say. And the first observation that I would like to make is that obvious connection between our prayer being answered and our obedience before God. He answers our prayers, John just said, because we keep His commandments. Now, that being said, I want to make sure that there is no misunderstanding that this verse is in some way implying that our obedience somehow merits our answer to prayer. So that if you're good enough, God gives you what you want. That's not what this is saying. See, our prayers and our obedience mirror one another because they are both grounded in the desire to do what's right in the eyes of God. They both give evidence of my desire to do God's will. That's why I obey and that's why I pray. I'm seeking the Lord and His ability to align my heart with His will. That's why I obey. That's why I pray. But that brings me to a second observation that I would like to make, and that is the connection between my prayers and God's will. Let me ask you, how, how do you know if you're praying according to God's will, right? Because that's the condition for his answer. He said in our passage this morning, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears, and whatever we ask, we have the request which we have asked of him. Let me begin by suggesting that Scripture is a good filter by which we should guide our prayers. Because it helps us know what God's will is. It's revealed in His Word. So that way, if I ask myself, do I need to be faithful to my wife? God's Word says yes. And then I pray accordingly. Lord, help me be the, the faithful husband that I know you desire for me. That is your will, and that is my desire. If you're a student or a child, you, you may ask yourself, does God want me to respect my parents? The answer is yes. Even when they don't understand, the answer is yes. God's Word says yes. And so you should pray, pray, Lord, help me be respectful and to honor my parents even when I don't understand. Because here's why. Listen to this. Here's why. It is His will because that's how He wants us to relate to Him. Because there are plenty of times all throughout our life when we have to trust Him and respect Him even when we don't understand. And if we can't do that with our parents, the chances are we're not going to do it with God. That's His will. And we pray accordingly. You see, I believe God's main purpose, His main reason for our prayer life is to, to be a place where He changes our heart to align our desires to accomplish His will. And God's Word is a good way of keeping that in check. It, it helps us see if we're play, praying just to, to get our way or if we really want to do what is in accordance with God's will. 
But, but what about those times that I know we all have faced where, where we don't know what to say? It's not the fact that we don't know God's will. We don't even know what words to speak. Well, there's good news. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. What do we do when we don't even have the words to pray? Look at verse 26, Romans chapter 8. And in the same way, the Spirit who helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God's Spirit intercedes for us in complete conformity with the will of God. Why? Because the mind of the Spirit is the mind of God. When the Spirit is praying on our behalf, He's praying in accordance with God's will. When you don't have the words, don't worry, He does. But look at what it goes on to say. I want you to notice the connection between what we just said in verse 28, very common passage. And we know that all that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, the Spirit of God prays according to the will of God to use all things to work together for the good of those who love Him in a way that conforms us into the image of of His Son. God's will in whatever circumstance is to conform us to look more like Jesus. The fact that He uses all things says that there is nothing in life that God can't use to accomplish that purpose. Good, bad, anticipated, unexpected, all things together for good. That's why we have such great assurance in our prayers. It's kind of like when I was a toddler and I remember just trying to shoot a basketball into one of those little toddler basket hoops, which are, I think, smaller than the actual ball itself. Because you can never make it, right? And I know that when that was going on, my dad wasn't sitting on the side disappointed because I couldn't make any shots. What did he do? He went and took the basket so that every time I made a sh- took a shot, he made sure it went in the hole. Right? Well, I think that's what God does with us. Our assurance is not based on our ability to hit the target of God's will in the perfection of our prayers. Our assurance is in God's ability to accomplish His will despite how imperfect our life, or our prayers might be. He will direct your path as long as your desire is to do His will. Now, some hear that and they they think to themselves, yeah, (laughs) you don't know my life. I've made a lot of mistakes and I'm not real sure that God can do anything with what I've done. 
let me encourage you to believe this to be true. Scripture says that there is nothing in your life that God can't redeem in a way that accomplishes His will to conform your life into His image. If you will let Him, He will change your heart in a way that changes your life. But you have to trust Him. And and prayer is that place of trust where God does His best work of changing our heart to be in alignment with His will. We have that assurance because that's God's promise. But what about our prayers for other people? Because it's one thing when God's doing business on our heart, when we are there before Him, but what about the hearts of those we love? Let's look at that next. Turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All all unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. John says there in the beginning that if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, that he should pray for him. That's what's called a third-class conditional clause, which simply means that we, it's intended to describe something that has an expectation attached to it. In this case, if you see your brother in sin, it is expected that you pray for him, believing that God is the one who will give him life. But then John makes a distinction, doesn't he? That there's a difference between a sin that does not lead to death and one that does lead to death and he goes as far as to say I wouldn't pray for the sin that that does lead to death so the question is what's the difference between a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death and I think perhaps the more important question is what kind of death are we talking about here is this a physical death or spiritual death well a lot of people who look at this passage see that it might be speaking to a physical death. And they look to the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You remember their story. It's a husband and wife. They're property owners. And they decided to sell some of their property property to, to give the proceeds to the church. But what they did in the secrecy of their hearts was to keep back some of that profit so that they still looked good to the church, but they were still well off with what they kept for themselves. Right? They lied in their effort to do something good. And as a result, the Scripture says that they fell down and breathed their last. Their act of sin cost them their life. They died. And some look at that example and suggest that that's what John has in mind when he talks about the sin that leads to death. That it's a physical death. But here's why I don't believe that that's the best option. And number one is this. How do you know if it's the sin that leads to death? They die. And then it's too late to pray. (laughs) Right? And not only that, the Bible never categorizes sin. 
to such a degree that we can look at certain ones and say, oh, well, that's the sin that leads to death. Make sure you don't pray for that one. Right? It's not in there. Now, I know that there is tradition in church history where people have categorized sin into mortal sins, those that lead to death, and the venial sins, those that don't lead to death. But that is not biblical. It is man-made. Personally, I don't think this is the best option. Because I don't see how John would shift from this topic of assurance by instructing us not to pray for certain sins that might lead to a physical death. Instead, I I think context gives us the best interpretation of what is truly a difficult passage. Remember, John is encouraging believers in the context of confusion, having been created by false teachers. He wants them to have assurance of eternal life. That was very clear in verse 13. He wants us to have assurance of answered prayer. That was very clear in the passages 14 and 15. And now I believe he wants us to have assurance in God's forgiving grace. He begins by identifying the obligation that we have towards our brothers and sisters in Christ when, they see, when we see them caught in the trap of sin. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask and God will give him life. See, I believe John is speaking to a sin that does not lead to spiritual death. Because the assurance we have, listen to this, the assurance we have in Scripture is that those who have been made alive in Christ cannot die a spiritual death because that consequence has been paid for by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Now, sin can wreak havoc in our lives, and that's precisely why we should pray for those who have been caught in sin. But believers in Jesus Christ can never, ever sin in a way that God takes back His promise of eternal life. In fact, the reason we should pray is because we believe and we have assurance that God is faithful and just. And if we confess our sins, He will forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that we, He will give us life, that there is grace and forgiveness for those who have a repentant heart. We pray because of the assurance that God always gives life to those who come to Him in repentance. That He can use all things, remember? Those that are good, those that are bad, those that are unanticipated, those that are expected, to carry out His good purpose, which is to conform us into His image. And when our heart's desire is the same, His will shall be done. I think verse 17 clarifies. Look, it says, All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Everybody sins. All unrighteousness is sin. But the penalty is not the same for all people because some have been covered by the blood of the cross. There is always forgiveness for that sin that does not lead to spiritual death. We have that assurance. In this context, I see the sin 
that leads to death that John is speaking to here is the sin of the false teachers. That's always been in the backdrop of his letter. We should not pray for the forgiveness of those who have denied the very means of that forgiveness. Refusal to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the one sin that cannot be forgiven because it always leads to spiritual death. No prayer can change the divine judgment of eternal separation from God for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Now that being said, this passage is in no way suggesting that we shouldn't pray for unbelievers. What it is saying is that we should not ask God to look away from those who have chosen to deny His Son. God's forgiveness is reserved for those who trust in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Now, I really regret that there has been so much attention being placed on this sin that leads to death because it is not anywhere close to the main point of this passage. John is writing to give assurance. I told you that in the very beginning. I'm going to tell you that a hundred times. That's the point of this passage. We need to know that when we trust in Christ, our eternal destiny is secure. This assurance gives us confidence when we go to God in prayer, knowing that He hears our prayer and He fulfills those requests that are given in accordance with to His will. And we know His will through what is revealed in His Word. And in those times when we don't have the words, the Spirit of God prays according to the will of God on our behalf. And we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have fallen in sin because we know that God always rescues a repentant heart. And when it comes to unbelievers, pray for their salvation. Because there is no forgiveness apart from faith in Jesus Christ. As we finish up this morning, I want us to just take a little bit and consider that very intentional connection that John has made between our assurance and our prayers. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? I think the best explanation for why this is the case is because there is no greater place of security than when God is the one who is guiding our life. That's the whole purpose of prayer. Aligning our heart to God's will. Prayer is the posture of dependence. We pray because we truly believe that we cannot navigate life without Him. That's why I think prayer is not just an action, it's an attitude. And it may be the very thing that Scripture has in mind when it says pray without ceasing. Right? It's this idea that you're always practicing the presence of God in a desire to do what is right in His eyes. Living in that constant awareness of of God's presence is what helps us keep that desire to do what is right in His eyes on the top of our mind. It's an attitude that considers prayer of such priority that... I'm always wanting to make sure I'm in alignment with what God's will is for my life. 
Now, I'll be honest. (laughs) I don't think most of us practice that attitude of prayer. Myself included. I think we mostly reserve our time of prayer to times of crisis. Right? I've thought about this, and I want to be careful in how I communicate this. Because I only want people whose hearts really desire to be a part of times of prayer when we call the church together for that purpose. And I understand that life is busy, and there are lots of things going on. We've had three elder prayers. We average about 30 people out of 300. That's not the problem. Here's what I believe would happen. If there was a, God forbid, terrorist attack that hit close to home, say, Dallas, Texas, the next week, if we announced a time of elder prayer, how many people would be here? More than we would have room for. You know, I think we need to make sure that we don't live with an attitude where we essentially tell God, you know, I'm doing pretty good on my own, but when I get in a bind, I'll let you know. Because that's the wrong perspective on prayer. Prayer is not what we do to change God's mind or to get His attention. Prayer is what God uses to change our heart and get our attention. That's the only way we know how to walk in accordance with His will. It reminds me of what Moses said to the people of Israel. He said, listen, we are not moving from this place unless we are convinced God goes before us. Until then, we're going to pray. And I think that needs to be the attitude of God's people at all times under any situation, crisis or not. But I actually think that 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 same purpose carries over in our prayers for one another. I'm pretty convinced that God's still interested in our heart even when we were praying for those whom we love. Because the truth is, is my prayer is not changing their heart, Right? My prayer won't bring conviction in their life. My prayer won't bring healing in their life. I pray for these things, but as I do, I realize that God is essentially asking me, do you trust me? Do you believe I've got this? Do you really believe that I can work all things, good, bad, unanticipated, expected, to carry out my purpose to conform my people into the image of my son. Do you believe that? Do you trust me? Because if we love someone, is there any better thing than seeing God's purpose being fulfilled in their life? God wants us to pray for others. But I think he has something he wants to say to our heart when we do. Do we trust him? Can we turn our fears? That's often what motivates us to pray, right? Can we turn our fears into trust? God is wanting to change our heart when we go to him in prayer, believing that it is his desire to carry out his will in our life to conform us into the image of His Son. And that when we entrust those we love to Him in prayer, we are believing that He is able in all circumstances to carry out that purpose. And we can leave them in His hands.
we can be assured that God is a promise keeper. That He has an eternal perspective in all that He does as He works all things according to His will. There is no greater place of security for us or for those we love than to have the assurance that our life is in His hands. That's a great place of assurance. That's the assurance we have when we go to God in prayer. That's the point of this passage. Rest in His capable hands. With that in mind, let's pray. God, when we come to You, we do so with confidence that You hear us. We do so with confidence in the assurance that it is Your desire to shape our heart to carry out Your will. And that will is to conform us into the image of Your Son, to make our life look more like Christ. And in doing so, we experience the highest good that the Creator God has in store for those whom He has created. That Your design is perfect. And may we trust that all Your answers are given with an eternal perspective well beyond what we can see and understand. But you're good. You're righteous. And all things are happening to bring about the highest good of those whom you love to the praise and glory of your name by which we have been saved. May that be our heart and our commitment and our assurance every time we humbly come before you in prayer. We ask this in confidence because of the assurance of God's promises And in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ.